welcome to the 17th episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. I'm Anna Pratoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. As usual, I have with me Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And today we also have Daniel Woods, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I will talk about a couple of recent cases on waiver of privilege. Maura will look at some developments on disclosure, judgments and enforcement. And finally, Daniel will discuss two recent Court of Appeal decisions on limitation and settlement, respectively. So, starting with privilege, first I'll look at Flowcrete and Febro Polymers in which the defendants tried unsuccessfully to prevent the claimants using a number of privileged documents that the defendants said they had disclosed inadvertently. The starting point is that where a party receives its opponent's documents as part of a disclosure exercise in legal proceedings, it's generally entitled to assume that the opponent has conducted the exercise properly and has only disclosed material it intended to disclose. So if that includes privileged material, then the privilege has been waived. However, the court can intervene to prevent use of privileged documents provided in error, where the disclosure was procured by fraud, or as was alleged in this case, it was an obvious mistake. Where an obvious mistake is relied on, It's important to remember that the burden is on the disclosing party to establish both that there was a mistake and that the mistake was obvious. And this High Court decision shows that the court may take a strict approach to those questions. The judge said that the defendant's evidence in relation to whether a mistake had been made was limited and unsatisfactory. And it also failed to establish that the mistake was obvious, even though the documents related to the defendant's response to matters relating to an injunction and to preparation of a witness statement. The judge said that wasn't enough to put the claimants or their solicitors on notice of an obvious mistake, as it wasn't for the recipient to second guess why disclosure had been made unless the mistake was obvious. Here, none of the documents were marked privileged or were of a type that was obvious privileged and no lawyers were included in the correspondence. And it was also relevant that the defendants did not immediately raise the question of privilege and inadvertent disclosure when the issue arose. So, all in all, the judge was not satisfied that the defendant had established an obvious mistake. And... In relation to certain of the documents, the judge said he wouldn't have granted an injunction anyway as those documents raised questions about whether one of the defendant's witness statements was properly independent or had been influenced by others. So that's another reminder that the court always has a discretion whether or not to grant an injunction to prevent use of privileged material disclosed in error. And it may refuse to do so if the material shows prima facie wrongdoing or inappropriate conduct. So as it did, for example, in the Pickett and Balkind case that I discussed in an episode of this podcast last September. So I think two practical messages to highlight from this case. 
First, if you do find you've disclosed privileged material in error, raise the point promptly with your opponent and explain the basis on which you say the material is privileged. If you fail to raise it promptly, then that may well count against you later on. And secondly, at the earlier stage of preparing documents for which you'll want to claim privilege, particularly if there's no lawyer involved on the face of the documents, and so it it may not be obvious that they're privileged, it's always sensible to make sure that the documents are marked as privileged and confidential. Not only because that might help in showing there was an obvious error, but also because it might mean the error is less likely to arise in the first place, as they'll hopefully be picked up in a privilege review. The other case I want to look at briefly is Clements and Frisbee, where the High Court held that there was a collateral waiver of privilege, where a claimant gave a witness statement referring to his solicitor's delay in progressing his claim and the reasons for it to explain his own delay in pursuing the action, a point that was potentially relevant to the substantive merits of the case. The principle of collateral waiver is also known as the cherry-picking rule, and it essentially means that a party cannot rely on the good bits of its privileged material to support its case, while hiding behind privilege to avoid having to disclose the bad bits. As a matter of fairness, the court may require the party to disclose other privileged material relating to the same issue or transaction, so that the court and the opponent are not misled by the selective disclosure. It used to be said that a party could avoid a finding of collateral waiver if it relied on the effect of the privileged communication rather than its contents. But in more recent cases, including the Court of Appeals decision in PCP and Barclays in 2020, the courts have moved away from that distinction. Under the court's current approach, the question of whether there has been a collateral waiver is a fact-sensitive question, which depends on whether a party has relied on a privileged communication to advance its case on an issue the court has to decide. And you might ask rhetorically, if referring to the privileged communication isn't going to advance your case on an issue that the court has to decide, then why are you referring to it? So I think the message is that you should always think very carefully before referring to privileged material in a statement of case or witness statement or any material you are putting before the court because the waiver may be held to extend further than you intend. I'll hand over now to Maura. Thanks, Anna. I'll start with a case about disclosure, the Republic of Mozambique and Credit Suisse International. It's really about when documents on the personal device of a current or former employee or officeholder of a company that's party to litigation will be in that party's control for the purposes of disclosure. Now, it's been established in other cases that under English law, a court will readily find that a party has control over documents on personal devices where they were used to conduct the business of the party in question. Um, So in a number of cases, it's made orders to facilitate disclosure, such as by ordering the party to request those individuals to hand over their devices to an independent expert to extract the material that's within the party's control while obviously excluding the individual's own personal material. 
The position's more complicated where the relationship between the party and the individual is governed by foreign law because it may be that there's no right of access to the documents and so no control under that foreign law. Um, The Republic of Mozambique case is worth noting for a few reasons. First, it's an illustration that, as you'd expect, if the relevant party doesn't bring forward any evidence to the contrary, the court is generally entitled to assume that the relevant foreign law is the same as English law. And so there is the necessary control. Um, so, so if you want to show that there is no control as a matter of the foreign law that applies to that relationship, you'll, you'll need to bring evidence to that effect. Second, it's a reminder that even if there would otherwise be no control under the relevant foreign law, if the individual has actually consented to the party searching their device, then that will be sufficient to establish control. Uh, and, And third, it shows that where the question of control still has to be determined, the court can order the party to identify which current or former employees it has actually asked for consent and the extent to which consent has been given. Now, the court made such an order in this case, saying it it didn't depend on any assumption that there was, in fact, control. It was an exercise in case management to avoid troubling non-parties to litigation with duplicate requests and incurring unnecessary costs. So I think that's something to bear in mind if you're trying to get hold of documents in a, a similar scenario. The next case I want to touch on is Wright and McCormick, which is the most recent in a string of judgments over the past year or so, which show the need for caution if the court circulates a a draft judgment under embargo, as it's called, uh, meaning that the judgment is circulated on confidential terms, usually a few days before it's handed down publicly. Now, previous cases have made it clear that this embargo is very strict. It prohibits any disclosure of the draft judgment or any use of it by a party or its legal advisors, except for very limited purposes. And um, a breach of the embargo may be treated as a contempt of court. In the present case, the, the High Court decided on its own initiative to issue contempt proceedings against the claimant on the basis primarily that certain posts on the Slack messaging platform may have disclosed the substance of a draft judgment while it was still under embargo. Um, Under the judgment in question, the claimant succeeded in his defamation case, but was awarded only nominal damages of one pound. And the interesting point here is that the Slack messages didn't refer to the case or the judgment expressly, but in effect hinted at the results through the use of a a hypothetical. So the the message said... um, If a person would spend four million to receive a dollar plus and two million costs, so the other side is bankrupt, what would you think? I.e. the only thing that matters is crushing the other side. Well, I would spend four million to make an enemy pay one. So the claimant said that this wasn't intended to disclose the outcome of the case, but merely to encourage debate. But the court said it couldn't accept that explanation without further investigation. Uh, In its view, there was a real prospect that a court might find the claimant had intended to disclose the substance of the judgment in that way. So I think the message is obvious. If if you're in receipt of a draft judgment, not only can you not disclose it, you also can't do anything to hint at the result. And if you do, you may be at risk of proceedings for contempt of court. Then finally, for me, uh, just to mention that the government is consulting on its plan for the UK to become a contracting state to the Hague Convention of 2019 on the recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments in civil and commercial matters. Now, if that happens, and I think it's very likely that it will, 
it will be good news um, because the EU has acceded to the convention on behalf of all member states other than Denmark. So if the UK also joins up, it will mean that most judgments are readily enforceable between the UK and the EU, much as they were before the end of the Brexit transition period. Um, Though I should say the convention is narrower than Lugano uh, and so not a complete replacement for it, but it's certainly a very positive step. Um, there's also the point that there's a 12-month delay between any country joining up to Hague 2019 and the convention applying to it. Um, and even then, it only applies where the proceedings leading to a judgment are commenced after the entry into force date. So all of that means it will be a while before Hague 2019 has any practical impact, even once we sign up. Um, so really, that means the sooner the better in terms of the UK joining. Um, we'll keep you posted once there are more concrete plans on that front. So that's it for me, and I'll hand over to Daniel. Thanks, Maura. As Anna said, I'm going to look at a couple of recent Court of Appeal decisions. Firstly, Consulting Concepts International and Consumer Protection Association, Saudi Arabia, which is a case about limitation. The claims were for payment of unpaid invoices for services relating to asthma research. The basic limitation period for a debt claim is, of course, six years. And here the work was carried out and all of the invoices were submitted more than six years before the proceedings were issued. But the agreement between the parties provided that invoices were to be paid within 90 days. And for all but one of the invoices, the 90 day payment period expired less than six years before the proceedings were issued. So the question was, when time started to run for limitation purposes, which depends on when the cause of action accrued. The defendant argued that the cause of action accrued as soon as the work was completed. So the claim was time barred as it was brought more than six years after that point. The claimant argued that because the parties had agreed 90 day payment terms, the cause of action only accrued once the 90 days had passed. So the claim was brought in time. Both the High Court and the Court of Appeal found that the cause of action accrued when the services were completed, applying a decision from 1897, which held that that was the case in the context of a claim for a solicitor's fees. The claimant argued that the position was different where, as here, the parties had stipulated a time or deadline for payment, and that in those circumstances, time would only run from the contractual payment deadline. The Court of Appeal disagreed. It accepted that the starting point, the time runs from completion of the work, can be varied by contract. But merely granting time for payment will not be sufficient to displace this general rule. To have that effect, the relevant term must be a condition precedent to the right to payment arising, not merely a limit on the creditor's right to enforce the right to payment. In this case, the court held the 90-day payment terms merely delayed the creditor's right to enforce payment. It didn't act as a condition precedent to the right to payment arising. So the cause of action accrued when the work was done and the claim was time barred. That's an important reminder of a point that I think may often be overlooked. Time may start running for limitation purposes 
before payment is due, or even before an invoice has been issued. If that's not your intention, you should make sure your contractual terms are clear that the right to payment arises only, for example, when an invoice is issued or when payment is due. And if there's any doubt and you need to bring a claim for payment, you should assume time started running as soon as the work was done. The other case I want to touch on briefly is Marinello Rosso and Lahumi, where the Court of Appeal agreed with the High Court that a release clause in a settlement agreement included unknown claims alleging an unlawful means conspiracy, even though the clause didn't expressly refer to dishonesty or fraud. This case is interesting because it's often said that you need clear words to exclude claims for fraud. But in fact, there's no rule of construction to that effect. The ordinary principles apply. The court will consider how the release clause would be understood by a reasonable person with the background knowledge available to the parties at the time it was agreed. There is what's sometimes referred to as a cautionary principle that, in the absence of express words, the court will not readily conclude that a release will encompass unknown claims for fraud or dishonesty, simply because parties are unlikely to intend to give up such claims by way of a general release. But it all depends on the context. And in this case, it was significant that, in correspondence prior to the settlement agreement, the claimant had put forward accusations of illegality, duress, and breach of fiduciary duty. The court took the view that the further claims the claimant had sought to bring were essentially similar claims reformulated as claims for unlawful means conspiracy, so they were encompassed by the release. Therefore, I think the upshot is that if it's arguable from the context that the parties have contemplated the possibility of claims based in fraud, but from the claimant's perspective, you don't intend to give up fraud claims if it later emerges that there was fraudulent conduct, it's worth seeking a specific carve-out of fraud claims from the scope of the release. Conversely, as a defendant, you may want express words to show that fraud claims are covered. However, that may be difficult to negotiate for obvious reasons. Thank you, Daniel and Maura, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. And as usual, we'll be back with another update in a couple of months.